Hello, everyone. My name is Evie Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Platwoods Church. Welcome to worship online today. Over these last few weeks, we have been experimenting with the first four books of the New Testament, testing the hypothesis that combining two elements, the Gospels and our hearts, will create a reaction in each one of us. Each book bears the good news about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And that's what gospel means, good news. Each gospel writer paints a slightly different picture of Jesus. We learn something different about him with each perspective. So to recap, in case you're just joining us today, we first talked about Matthew. And in Matthew, Jesus is the embodiment of God's power. We see what the kingdom of God looks like over and against the kingdoms of this world. And then last week, we looked at Mark. In Mark, Jesus is in motion. He is active. He is on the go. And then he's inviting us to follow him, to watch what he does, and then do it ourselves. And today, we look at Luke. Luke is a lot of people's favorite gospel. Luke is a good writer. He's a good storyteller. He wrote his account a little bit later than Mark and Matthew, so he's had more time to construct his thoughts and put them together in a structured and polished way. The Gospel of Luke was written down sometime between 80 and 95 CE, Common Era. And it's written, as best we know, by Luke the physician. He's a doctor, so he shows a preference for writing a lot about Jesus healing people, of course. He was supposedly a companion of Paul, who came just after Jesus and spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Luke actually wrote about Paul, too. The Gospel of Luke is part one of a two-part volume, but you wouldn't know it just by looking at your Bible because the Gospel of John breaks it up. But Luke and Acts go together as one continuous narrative. Luke talks about Jesus, and then Acts talks about the stuff that happened right after Jesus, the Acts of the Twelve Apostles, the birth and spread of the early church, the movement of the Holy Spirit, and the mission of Paul. Luke's gospel is the only one that begins with an address to a specific someone. He writes in verse 3 and 4, Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning— I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. Now, the interesting thing about this address to Theophilus is that it could potentially be someone's name, but the name means God lover. So it just as easily could be a general address to anyone who loves God. And that would make a lot of sense for Luke, because at the heart of everything he writes is this conviction and the reminder that Jesus came to invite everyone to be a God lover. He didn't just come for a specific group of people, the Jews or the teachers or the people living in Galilee or the wealthy or the wise. Jesus extends invitations to everyone, especially the people no one else invites. So God lover can be anyone. It can even be you and me 2,000 years later. So speaking of love, it's wedding season. 
Did you know that June and September are the most popular months for weddings in the United States? A lot of you have already been on the wedding circuit this summer. It's fun, it's festive, it's a happy time. I'm doing a wedding next Saturday, in fact. But I have to let you in on my great fear about weddings. I have table anxiety. You can guess what this is, maybe. Unless you are an extreme extrovert who thrives on meeting new people and chatting up a room, You've all experienced table anxiety at some level. You know how it happens. You arrive at the reception venue after the ceremony and you wonder to yourself, have they assigned tables or is it open seating? And you can tell pretty quickly after you get in the door because there will be a line to sign some keepsake gift or guest book and, and then you pick up your table number. And that's the point where I get really sweaty and I try to figure out how long it is socially acceptable to hang around the appetizers before actually going to my table. I have anxiety because I don't know who I will be sitting with. I don't know everyone who was invited. I can hope that they have seated me with friends or at least one other person I kind of know, but I can't count on it. And I'm terrified of the awkward table. The table that consists of all the people the bride and groom weren't sure what to do with. Or the leftover table. Or the table with the emotionally needy cousin who the bride thinks I can help because I'm a pastor. Or the table with the groom's college buddy who didn't make the groomsman cut and no one really expected to come but he did and he brought a date who doesn't know anybody either. Or the family with three small children because, well, I have kids so I can tolerate them. Or the bride's dentist or all of them at the same table. I'm terrified of the awkward table. Jesus was the master of the awkward table. Brides, if you want help making your wedding tables as awkward as possible, Jesus is your man. As I read Luke and try to figure out how to summarize it, how to capture the spirit of the gospel in one image, I noticed how many times Jesus is at a table. He shares meals with his disciples and other people in all the Gospels, but noticeably more so in Luke. And so that's the framework I want to use today. We learn the most important things about Jesus in Luke by paying attention to his guest list, to who he invites, who's around his table, the metaphorical seating chart for his banquets. Jesus invites the people no one else invites and he plops them all down at the table together, both literally and figuratively. He wants people to see those who have become invisible. So today we'll look at a few of Jesus' awkward table scenes and who is gathered around. But ultimately those scenes will help us to pay attention to all the people Jesus interacts with and talks to and ministers to in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus makes his purpose very clear from the beginning of Luke. In chapter 4, he preaches his first sermon in the temple, and he's quite bold. He simply stands up in front of the synagogue, takes the scroll of Isaiah to read it, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. 
He began to explain to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. That's basically Jesus' mission statement. His entire purpose for being here, to preach good news, proclaim release, give sight, liberate, and proclaim God's favor. And it's his guest list. The poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. The rest of Luke then demonstrates over and over Jesus inviting the people that no one else invites. So let's go crash some awkward tables. The first one I picked out comes in chapter 5. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up, left everything behind and followed him. Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his home. A large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with them. The Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. There's no love lost on tax collectors. They were generally hated by the people. And it was a safe assumption that they overtaxed and lined their own pockets. They were dishonest, disliked, disparaged. And though they weren't poor or oppressed, they were on the outside. They weren't on anybody's guest list. And as Jesus says, they weren't healthy. They needed someone to take care of them. So Jesus invites Levi to change his ways, to be released from his prison, to follow Jesus. And he does. And then he throws a party. And who are the tax collector's friends? Well, other tax collectors and sinners, apparently. This is not a party that the church folk approve of. The Pharisees, the legal experts, turn up their noses at Jesus and the disciples. Why would you eat with them? Sinners, tax collectors. What an awkward table you've created. We would never eat with them. This painting depicts this very feast at Levi's house. It was painted by Italian Paolo Veronese in the 1500s. But ironically, it didn't start as a painting of Levi's feast. It started as the Last Supper, you know, the one that Jesus and his disciples had before he went to the cross. But the church people didn't like it. He was asked to explain why the painting contained, and I quote, buffoons, drunken Germans, and other such scurrilities. He was told he had to change his painting to be more reflective of the holy feast. Well, he did no such thing, you know artists. Instead, he changed the title of the painting to Feast in the House of Levi, because in Luke, it specifies that sinners were present. And after this, no more was said about his painting. They left it alone. Jesus' awkward table is full of sick people, people whose hearts are sick, who are bound by greed or some other vice or sin, people who have alienated themselves with their actions, people condemned and judged by others and buffoons and drunken Germans, apparently. Would you sit at that table? Or would you be asking, what is Jesus doing eating over there? 
We crash another party in chapter 14. It's like a party within a party. It's very inception-y. Jesus is at a dinner, and then he tells a story about a dinner at the dinner. He's sitting at a table with some friends. We don't know who exactly, and he starts conversation. He says to his host, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. Jesus replied with a story then. A certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people when it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, Come, the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, eh, I, I bought a farm and I must go see about it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen and I'm, I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones, and the side streets, and bring the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there's still room. The master said to the servant, Go to the highways and back alleys, and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of these who were invited will taste my dinner. You know, when that guy gets back from checking on his oxen and decides he still has time to swing by the party, he's in for a big surprise at this awkward table. There will be a bunch of people sitting there that he would never want to sit with. There's a reason the servant is sent to the streets to invite the poor, the crippled, and the blind because that's where they are. They are not woven into the fabric of the community. They are cast to the edges of it. Nobody invites them to anything. They are on the outside. Jesus rips up the guest list and starts from scratch on this one. The typical guests, the respectable ones, the expected ones have better things to do and they won't accept his invitation. So instead, he brings the outsider in. He elevates from the street to the seat of honor. The Pharisees have no interest in Jesus' unorthodox table etiquette. They simply grumble and disdain him after this parable, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh, the horror. Jesus' awkward table is made up of poor people people who need help, people who can't pay back or match such extravagant generosity, people who might ask for help, people who probably smell bad from being outside all day and all night. It's made up of people that most hosts would never know what to do with and most guests would never want to sit by. Would you sit at that table or would you say, oh good, I'm glad Jesus is sitting with them so I don't have to. You'll find more and more tables all throughout Luke as you read it. 
And you'll find more people not at tables who would normally be excluded, but who Jesus intentionally includes. You'll find women playing a more visible role in Luke than either in Matthew or Mark. You'll find Gentiles, people who were not in the inner Jewish circles. You'll find widows and foreigners, Romans and beggars, sick in body, sick in spirit, the least and the lost. You'll find lots and lots of people who aren't on anyone else's guest list. But they're on Jesus' guest list. Over and over, his work among them involves restoring them to their community, giving them back their circles so they have a table at which to sit. There's one last table I'll mention in Luke, and it's in chapter 22. And this one is the table where Jesus and his disciples have their last supper together before he's crucified. It's a familiar scene to many. There are no strangers around this table, no outsiders. This is Jesus' closest crowd. But it's important to listen closely to who they all are. Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I won't eat it until it is fulfilled in God's kingdom. And after taking a cup and giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, This cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, my betrayer is with me. His hand is on this table. Those first words may sound familiar to you. We say them or something very similar every time we gather at the communion table. This table story was a sacred and holy meal that has been remembered countless times the world over. It was Jesus' inner circle, his closest friends, those who loved him best. There should have been nothing awkward about this table. But there it was in that last sentence. You can see him right there in the foreground, Judas Iscariot. He's looking down at the table holding a bag of silver in his hand, his payoff for betraying his friend. He's the only one without that glowy circle around his head. That circle in religious art, specifically in icons, is called a nimbus. And we see them to indicate holy people or saints or the divine. Choices have consequences, Judas. No nimbus for you. Even in Jesus' most vulnerable moment, his moment when he would have liked to be comfortable and safe and surround himself with friends he could trust, he left one awkward spot. He shared his table with his own betrayer, the man that would send him to his death. Would you sit there? Would you share a table with an enemy, with someone who hurt you, with someone you couldn't trust? Jesus did. There was still a place at Jesus' table for Judas, if he wanted it. He was always on the guest list. When we talk or we sing about amazing grace, 
about God's grace at the table. This is what we mean. We mean that all are invited and welcome to come, even especially those we don't think belong there. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus shows us how to host an awkward table. And at that last supper, then, he turns it over to us. And the result is that now for 2,000 years, we have been seated at our own awkward table together. When we gather in worship each week, wherever we are, we gather around an actual physical table or in this virtual space, and we often break bread and drink the cup together. And we are an awkward bunch. Think about it. Some of us are rich. Some of us are poor. Some of us are sick. And some are physicians. Some of us need forgiveness. And some of us need to forgive. Some of us are outsiders. Some are lonely. Some are desperate. Some of us can't trust anyone. Some of us have lost the trust of everyone. Some of us are women, some of us are men, some of us are non-binary, some are young, some old, some gay, some straight, some black, some white, some tall, some short, some nerdy, some cool. Some of us need help and some give help. What a motley crew. And all of us are on the guest list. All of us have an invitation to eat with Jesus. Where else in your life do you find a table like that? What we learn from Jesus in Luke is that every table should start looking a little more awkward. This table here already looks awkward, but is it awkward enough? Take note of who's not here yet. Who are the people in your life that no one thinks to invite? Who are the people you subconsciously or maybe consciously don't think should be invited? Who are the people you don't want to sit by? Who are the people that make you uncomfortable? If they're not here, you should probably invite them. They're on the guest list. They just haven't been invited. They don't know that they are invited. Our church table is an awkward table and it should always be looking more and more awkward. That's what makes it beautiful. But to take it one step further, what does your own table look like? You can think about that literally. Who do you sit down and share a meal with? Who do you invite to your home? Who do you take to lunch? Is it the same people over and over again, the people most like you, the ones you're most comfortable with? Or is it the person no one else ever takes? You can think about it more broadly, too. Do you, as a representative of Jesus Christ in our world, spend any time with those on the fringes, at the margins? Where do you encounter the sick, the poor, the isolated, and what do you do? How do you create space in your life for the people that everyone else has forgotten or pushed away? Is there anything awkward about the tables in your life? There should be. Every time you sit down at a table this week, which will be many times, I want you to think about Jesus' tables. Remember who was invited. Think about our shared table here. 
Remember all of us awkward people who are present and imagine all the people who are not. And then think about your table. Remember what you have seen in Jesus' example, what you see week after week here at our table and be bold in preparing your own guest list. Jesus made a place for you at his table. He has made a place for everyone and we get to offer the invitation. So let's make it the most beautifully awkward table we can imagine. Let us pray. Christ, you saw us when no one else would look at us. You invited us when no one else wanted us at the party. You made a place for us at your table because you love us. Fill our hearts with that same grace that we would see those who are unseen. Invite those who are unwanted and extend your table to all those for whom your heart longs. By the power of your generous spirit, we pray. Amen.